Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. They've been stepping up to fill leadership roles from Middletown, Connecticut, to the Bronx, to South Bend, Indiana. They're millennials, and author Charlotte Alter's new book focuses on them. She spent three years traveling the country to meet these young politicians who, quote, are trying to build a new America from the ground up. Millennials are mayors, city council members, state legislators, members of Congress, and among the Democratic presidential candidates. Coming up, two young Connecticut lawmakers will join us to talk about what drew them to politics. Middletown Mayor Ben Florsheim and State Representative Stephanie Cummings will be with us later. First author Charlotte Alter joins me by phone. She's a national correspondent for Time and again author of this new book, The Ones We've Been Waiting For, How a New Generation of Leaders Will Transform America. Uh, Charlotte, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me, Lucy. Uh, First off, are you a millennial? I am. I'm 30. I was born in 1989. So tell us why uh, you decided to focus on millennial uh, politicians. It's something that that you noticed in your your coverage uh, that they were starting to step up. So, yeah, so um, I actually sort of began thinking about this book in 2017 when Donald Trump withdrew from the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, And that was a moment that was kind of... uh, extremely alarming for many young people who are concerned about climate change. Um, and as I was looking into this, I, I realized that, you know, Trump is is the oldest first-term president. Um, he was elected by voters uh, who were overwhelmingly over 65 uh, white voters. And um, when I looked at his allies in his cabinet and in Congress, you know, I realized that, again, before the 2018 midterms, he was enabled by a Congress whose median age had gone up 10 years since the 1980s. And then I looked at the senators who were encouraging Trump to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement, and they were mostly guys in their 70s and 80s. So I thought to myself, you know, this cannot last forever. Um, we are approaching a, a, a moment of generational shift. And so I decided that I would, you know, ra- while every other political journalist was laser focused on the Trump administration, I was going to focus on the young people around the country who were kind of stepping up to lead in their communities. Um, and it happened to be that one of the young people that I started interviewing for this book in 2017 was Pete Buttigieg, who now is a, a major presidential contender. That's really interesting that you were able uh, to talk with him as he was starting to formulate a running uh, for president. Uh, Again, he was elected mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Um, As people read your book, The Ones We've Been Waiting For, uh, they learn a little bit about uh, the events that shaped uh, Pete Buttigieg's uh, political ambitions. Uh, Something that you focused on was uh, 9-11 was a a big deal uh, for many of these millennial politicians as they thought about what shaped uh, the worldviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So so the book uh, f- kind of follows uh, 10 millennial politicians through the major events of the last 20 years, because one of the things I learned as I was doing this research is that 
um, actually the events of early adulthood um, shape people's politics for the rest of their lives. And that actually it's a myth that young people are always liberal and older people are always conservative. In fact, uh, people develop their lifelong political leanings uh, in reaction to the experiences of their early political life. And one of the things I learned is that uh, unpopular presidents tend to repel young people from their party, and popular presidents tend to attract young people to their party. And so, uh, you know, I, I traced the lives of people like Pete Buttigieg and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and several of the young women who just got elected to Congress, like Haley Stevens and Lauren Underwood, and some Republicans like Elise Stefanik and Dan Crenshaw, and also some, you know, local and municipal leaders like... Svante Myrick, who's the mayor of Ithaca, New York, or Eric Lesser, who's a state senator from Massachusetts. I traced them from 9-11 through the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, in which some of them served, um, through the financial crisis, which affected many of their uh, lives in terms of their own ability to earn a living, or, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's family almost lost their home during the financial crisis, through uh, the rise of Barack Obama who was somebody that many of these young people had had worked for either on his campaign or in his administration. Um, and then the, the social movements that, uh, that arose during Obama's presidency, like Occupy and Black Lives Matter, and then the rise of Donald Trump, which was for many young people kind of a wake-up call moment. And many of them decided, you know what, now is the time for me to get involved. Let's let's break that down a little bit more. Again, my my guest by phone is Charlotte Alter. She's a national correspondent for Time. She has a new book out, The Ones We've Been Waiting For, How a New Generation of Leaders Will Transform America, focusing in on the millennial generation and, the, again, the life events that have shaped their, their political beliefs and why they are now uh, running for office or have been elected uh, to office. Uh, you mentioned uh, movements like Occupy and Black Lives Matter. You know, how, when we think about the millennial generation, how did they differ from past generations uh, that dealt with, say, uh, World War II or uh, uh, during uh, Reaganomics, uh, where you're thinking, uh, again, about um, some of the things that they're seeing and experiencing? It's not really individuals uh, that millennials are, are um, attracted to, but more uh, this, this uh, movement, per se? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that is a, a, a great way of putting it. So, uh, one of the things I learned as I was researching this book is that um, Obama's election was in some ways a double-edged sword for youth participation in politics. Because on the one hand, in 2008, Obama absolutely electrified young people and got them so involved. And, you know, people were knocking on doors for him and he had a record youth turnout and young people delivered Iowa and then the nomination and then the general election to Barack Obama. Um, But then what happened was that many of these young people thought to themselves, oh, my gosh, we've just done this historic thing. We have the first black president. He'll take care of it. And they kind of they they had stepped into the political system to help elect him. And then they stepped right back out because many people believed in him so much that they thought that he could solve these problems by himself without any help. Um, 
And that's why over the course of Obama's uh, administration, actually, young people didn't really get that involved in politics. Many young people in, you know, who were who were in law school or graduate school in political science were not looking at careers in elected office. And some of that also has to do, of course, with money in politics, because it's not a coincidence that um, you know, that, that this generation has been a little bit slow to seize political power because at the exact moment when so many of them were graduating with enormous amounts of student debt, uh, that was also the moment that it became more expensive than ever to run for office because of Citizens United. So, um, you know, it, it coincided with this moment where only extremely rich people who were themselves millionaires or had a lot of friends who were millionaires could afford to mount a political campaign. Um, and most millennials were not in that financial position. So uh, what you saw as in response to Barack Obama was a, a sort of sense among many young people that, listen, hey, if, you know, if Obama, if somebody as transformative as Barack Obama could not um, solve income inequality or could or if a or if the first black president could not you know, solve structural racism, then maybe these problems were beyond the scope of one person's ability to solve. And maybe they were systemic problems that needed a systemic solution and that it needed to be a, a movement of many people all at once, not one single figure who was going to address some of these problems. So that's why, for example, Occupy and Black Lives Matter, which were both deeply rooted in social media and this, this idea of networked power and, um, and, and, and a sense that there wasn't one person who was in charge. There were dozens or hundreds or even thousands of people who were in charge. Um, that really shaped the way millennials think of political power as something that is um, kind of uh, experienced in the plural and not necessarily like looking to a specific person for guidance. I should mention when we talk about the millennial generation, you're looking at uh, individuals born between 1980 and 1997? Yes. So um, Pew defines millennials as born between 1981 and 1997, but I kind of made an exception for 1980 because I really wanted to include Carlos Curbelo, who is a young conservative uh, uh, Republican who really... um, he, he lost his seat in 2018, but his experience really shows a lot of the challenges facing the GOP right now with young people. And so he was born in like, you know, the fall of, of 1980. And so I didn't want to cut him out just because he was born like three months too early. So I made a little bit of an exception for him. So when we look at surveys today, millennials uh, skew left. But in terms of President Trump's election, how has that impacted the uh, Republican? Republican Party with uh, with young people who are interested in politics. Well, Trump's election has really, um, you know, for it it has turbocharged the young left. I mean, what we saw in 2018 was that all of these young people who never would have considered a, a, themselves to be political actors looked at this guy who, you know, was not only 71 years old, but also had never held elected office, was accused of sexual assault by multiple women, you know, had a Twitter feed that was out of control. And they thought to themselves, if this guy can do it, so can I. 
Um, and that's where you got all of these young women, and also many women who weren't young or, or who were you know, in their 40s or 50s or 60s or 70s, who, who stood up and said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give, sh- give this a shot. And so um, for young Democrats, Trump's election was a real galvanizing moment where many of them said, listen, our, this is our time to take our country back, basically. Um, but for many young Republicans, Trump's election uh, had a slightly different effect because over the course of Obama's presidency, young Republicans had been trying really hard to pull the Republican Party into the 21st century, to bring in more women, to bring in more young people, to bring in more people of color. And as I detail in this book, a lot of young Republicans who were elected before Trump were very much trying to build a 21st century Republican Party that had diversity and that believed in climate change and that you know welcomed women. And they, they didn't want the Democrats to be the only party that had any significant diversity. They thought Republicans should have diversity. Um, and then Trump came in and basically trampled all over that um, goal. And what we saw... Um, for young Republicans was really astonishing because between 2015 and 2017, that's over the course of Trump's rise, uh, nearly half of young Republicans defected from the Republican Party. And then about half of those came back. So about a quarter defected permanently and a quarter defected and then returned. So what that tells me is that Trump has actually had a very negative effect on the Republican Party's appeal to young people. Um, And in fact, uh, many of the young elected officials that I spoke to from the Republican Party had a very kind of uh, pained or tortured attitude towards Trump, even those who were very aligned with him on a lot of policy issues. seemed to be reluctant to fully embrace him and seemed to really sense that even though right now he's in power and even though right now uh, Trump is somebody who, you know, is calling the shots in the Republican Party, even they seemed to know that that's not going to last forever and that 15 years from now being being aligned with Trump is something that could have a really negative political impact down the line. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today, Charlotte Alter, national correspondent for Time and author of The Ones We've Been Waiting For, How a New Generation of Leaders Will Transform America. We're going to continue talking with her after the break and also meet a millennial politician who was recently elected uh, to be mayor of Middletown, Connecticut. That's Mayor Ben Florsheim. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There are more than two dozen millennials serving in Congress today, but millennials are also working in city halls as mayors and council members and in state capitals as legislators. What life events shape millennials who are in politics today and why are they so misunderstood? My guest Charlotte Alter helps answer those questions in her new book, The Ones We've Been Waiting For, How a New Generation of Leaders Will Transform America. Charlotte is also a national correspondent 
for time. You can join our conversation. Are you a millennial involved in politics or thinking about it? The number 888-720-9677. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Before uh, we continue talking with Charlotte, I wanted to mention that we have a a millennial uh, political leader in studio with us now, uh, Mayor Ben Florsheim, who was recently elected to serve uh, Middletown, Connecticut. Uh, Mayor Florsheim, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. So uh, you're on the younger side of uh, the millennial generation. The tail end a little bit there, yeah. (laughs) Uh, So tell us, uh, when we hear uh, Charlotte talking about uh, life events that uh, led some of these millennial uh, uh, leaders to enter a political office, uh, what shaped your interest uh, into politics? Well, uh, what you were talking about with Charlotte um, earlier really resonated strongly with me. I, I started paying attention to politics when I was in high school uh, during the election of Barack Obama. I was, started following it in 2008. Uh, and after that election, I just kind of kept following it. I wanted to I wanted to learn more. I wanted to sort of follow this presidency. I found myself learning more about Congress and uh, state and local politics. And um, when I arrived in Middletown um, to become a student at Wesleyan University, I got involved in local campaigns right off the bat. Um, as I was studying politics and government in, in school, I also wanted to have the sort of real life experience of it. And uh, it just kind of led me into what became my, my career path. And uh, at a juncture in time where that felt very um, where we were going through all these turning points um, that, that Charlotte uh, was talking about earlier, uh, it kept me galvanized. It kept me. It kept me hooked. Mm. Now you worked for uh, Senator uh, Chris Murphy uh, again before you uh, became mayor of Middletown, Connecticut. He's one of our younger politicians, not a millennial. But how did uh, your time in his office uh, shape again uh, how you connect with constituents uh, using social media, per se? You know, I uh, I think that Chris has really kind of written the written the playbook in a lot of ways for uh, voter engagement, for community engagement using using social media, but also um, but also you know use the old fashioned stuff. Uh, you know, sort of. And I think that what's incredibly important, especially in the age of social media, uh, which is tremendously important, you need to reach people where they are, and that's where a lot of people live uh, these days. And you know that will that might change in five or ten years, but uh, it's it also makes it all the more important that you do the in-person work as well. Um, and I and I took a page out of the Chris Murphy playbook. Uh, he won his first race for state representative by knocking on thousands and thousands of doors, um, which is what I had to do uh, to get known in a competitive primary and then a competitive general election. And I think that that uh, that that in-person touch and that and that hyper-local focus. Is is just tremendously important in politics today. If you're not talking in social, if you're not using social media to talk about what you're doing in person, it's not going to really resonate. Um, and I think it's, the, it's that combination that uh, has been working uh, for a lot of folks. Uh, Charlotte Alter, if you could pick up on that, there's a, a sentence in your book. Again, the ones we've been waiting for. Uh, you write, "Social media buzz is the oxygen of 21st century American politics." Uh, something that we see Representative Ocasio Cortez uh, using extensively. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, I think the mayor is exactly right, though, about, you know, how what you do on social media needs to be connected to what you do in real life. I mean, I think of it kind of like how uh, FDR used the radio and JFK used television. Um, modern political figures and Donald Trump, you know, is inc- understands this better than anybody else. Yeah. Um, modern political figures cannot uh, get cannot break through without 
using social media in a sophisticated and and importantly authentic way. Um, and so I think, you know, some of the ways that we've historically seen uh, uh, political figures use their Facebooks or, or their Instagrams in a way that's literally like, you know, here I am at the local pancake breakfast, like thumbs up. Um, that's the bare minimum. And I, I think what we're seeing from figures like AOC or even on the right from figures like Dan Crenshaw is we're seeing them use social media to illuminate who they are as people, to tell their constituents like who they are as actual, you know, what their personality is like, not just how they voted on a bill. And um, that really gets people to kind of feel identified um, with somebody who uh, maybe they they wouldn't actually have cared that much who's the congressman from Houston, um, except that they feel like they know him through his social media. I had mentioned earlier, Charlotte, that um, the millennial generation is often misunderstood. So some of the uh, the, the ways that uh, millennials are described, self-absorbed, narcissistic, phone and social media obsessed, uh, blamed for uh, killing industry. And so I wanted to turn back to Mayor Ben Florsheim. It's all true. <laughs> okay. uh. With your with your, with your with your two phones that you have uh, sitting <laughs> with you right now. Um, when you were, you're 28. So when you decided you wanted to run uh, in the, the city of Middletown, Connecticut to become mayor. How did a longtime Middletown residents react to you? Well, I, I think that there, there was there was some people who reacted with surprise, but for others, it was not an unusual thing. Um, you know, our state senator, Matt Lesser, was elected to the House when he was 25. Um, that my predecessor, Dan Drew, was elected when he was, I think, 31. Um, and uh, And we've had a lot of young people elected to office in Middletown. And in Connecticut. Um, and I think that, you know, the, a common experience for me at, at the doors, you know, I would knock on somebody's door and I would say, I'm, you know, I introduce myself, say I'm running for mayor. And, they, and the first response would be, how old are you? <laughs> um, and I look, you know, we're on the radio. I, I look younger than I am. Um, so I would say, oh, I'm I'm 27. Uh, and they'd say, oh, OK, I, you know, because they, they assumed that I was 19 or 20 years old and, you know, I was still in college or something like that. Um, I think that uh, the 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 moment was one in which you know people were watching people uh, get elected at, all around the country. You know these high profile uh, races. You know Pete Buttigieg was mentioned earlier. Um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, obviously. Um, and there's and there's a lot of desire in in Connecticut and I think in general for new voices at the table for um, a, a sense of. Uh, moving forward a sense of a future-focused, future-oriented politics and approach to government. And so that resonated with a lot of people. And I and, and my my sense all along the way is, uh, you know, and I have to certainly want to keep myself humble about this, and that's where the listening and that's where the door knocking and that's where the um, making sure you show up comes in. But I, I think that a lot of people who fixate on the age issue um, on on either end of the spectrum, right? Because we see the same thing with people uh, questioning whether somebody like Bernie Sanders is too old um, to be running for president. Um, I think usually that reflects some other issue that you have with that candidate, and you're sort of using that as a as an excuse. I I, I don't think that it really 
makes a huge difference to, to voters. It really matters what you're what you're saying and what you're trying to accomplish. You're hearing uh, Mayor Ben Florsheim again. Uh, he's uh, the, the new mayor of Middletown, Connecticut. Also with me by phone is Charlotte Alter, national correspondent for Time and author of The Ones We've Been Waiting For, How a New Generation of Leaders Will Transform America. Uh, Charlotte, let's talk about uh, uh, the, the Bernie effect, uh, the idea that uh, there are certain issues that uh, millennials uh, feel very uh, uh, strongly about, but they're also looking at uh, leaders who are reflecting uh, their concerns. Someone like Senator uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, who is in his 70s, but there are a lot of young people uh, who are really tuned into him. Yeah, so I, I think uh, the mayor made a really excellent point about age. And one thing that I would sort of add to that is that um, I look at age um, as a proxy for, as, as a way to uh, kind of measure whether somebody is closer to the past than they are to the future. So, for example, somebody like Chuck Grassley was born in 1933. He's a Republican senator. He uh, was born in 1933. He was five years old when the chocolate chip cookie was invented. So some of these, um, some some of what this election is about, and also just you know even beyond this election, this this moment of generational shift. Some of this is about people asking themselves the question of you know should the people who ruled the 20th century, should those exact same people be ruling the 21st? Um, does, does having your politics rooted in 20th century assumptions and ideologies, is that still relevant two decades into the 21st century? And I think Bernie Sanders is, in a lot of way, an exception to that, because he was somebody who was, frankly, not embraced in the 20th century. He was not somebody who was considered to be a major political leader in the Senate um, in the 90s. And, um, and he, uh, and so there's, you know, he is speaking to many young people because in some ways he occupies this very unique role, which is that he, uh, is speaking to issues that they care about because of their financial precariousness. You know, this is a generation that has unbelievable amounts of student debt. They experienced the financial crisis, which meant that they have 34% less wealth than their parents did at their age. They are much less likely to get health insurance from their employer. They can't afford to buy homes. They can't afford to buy cars. Um, education is, uh, is, is through the roof. Um, and he's talking, you know, they're, they're looking at a, at a looming climate disaster catastrophe scenario, and nobody seems to be doing anything about it. So he's somebody who um, is speaking to all of these issues, but very importantly, he has credibility to speak to these issues because he's been talking about them for 40 years. Um, when nobody else was talking about them and when he wasn't being listened to and many people considered him kind of like a, you know, a, 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 a crank talking about Medicare for all. Um, and so uh, that's one of the reasons why young people trust him so much, because unlike some other people who may be kind of just now coming around to some of these issues, they see that Bernie Sanders has been talking about this for his entire career. And they're, they're very um, used to being kind of jerked around. Young people, remember, they've, they've seen many, they've, they're not that young. <laughs> We're talking about people who are in their early 30s, you know, late 20s, early 30s. They've seen a lot of politicians, um, 
you know, come in with big words and, you know, beautiful speeches. And and then they've seen not that much change. Um, so I think that many of these young people see somebody like Bernie Sanders as somebody who is an authentic messenger for a lot of what they care about. Well, I, I'm sad that we don't have more time to speak with uh, my guest, Charlotte Alter, again, uh, the author of the book, The Ones We've Been Waiting For, How a New Generation of Leaders Will Transform America. Really interesting read. Uh, she profiles uh, several uh, millennial politicians, both on, in the local and national level. Um, too early to tell what America will look like uh, with millennials in charge, but an eye-opening book about uh, what's shaping their views and why they're getting involved. Charlotte, thank you for joining us today here on Where We Live. Thanks so much for having me. Also with me is Middletown Mayor Ben Florsheim. He's going to stick around. Coming up after the break, we're going to hear from a Republican, a Representative Stephanie Cummings, who serves Waterbury's East End and East Mountain neighborhoods in the Connecticut General Assembly. And you can join us, too. But before we get to that, it's our winter fundraising campaign. Uh, you can, uh, again, support WMPR and all of the programming you hear. Here's the number to call. That number is 1-800-584-2788, 1-800-584-2788. You can go online to WNPR.org and make your contribution online as well. I'm Tucker Ives. I'm joined by Lori Mack, who is down in New Haven right now at our <laughs> Bureau at Gateway Community College. And we are hoping that you will join us with a contribution to Connecticut Public Radio right now. Uh, we have a goal of $1,200 during this hour of where we live. And we had a pretty strong morning during Morning Edition, but uh, things have slowed down a bit so far during where we live. This uh, fundraising drive has uh, started to morph a little bit into a march band to nowhere. So let's get that band back on track <laughs> and help us reach this $1,200 goal. You can give us a call at 1-800-584-2788 or go online to WNPR.org. This is a really interesting program, Millennials in Politics. And Tucker, we both know Middletown Mayor Ben Flores. I mean, he's a super smart and talented person. Really interesting program today. But I feel like it's important to say that this program was made possible mostly by listeners like you. We couldn't do this without your help. So thank you if you've already given. And if you've given in the past, thank you if you have made the decision to become a sustaining member of Connecticut Public Radio. If you've never contributed, you should know that listeners like you play an essential role in keeping us on the air, in the programs we're able to offer, and in the news we're able to report. We're committed to making sure that every person who lives in our community can come here to make sense of key events and get a deeper understanding of important issues affecting our lives and our future, like the program that we're listening to today. Listener support makes the news, information, and conversations like this one possible. So if you're able, I'm here to ask, along with Tucker, for your essential contribution to make sure that Connecticut Public Radio remains here. You can become a member of this community by going to WNPR.org and clicking on the red Donate button. You can also call us at 1-800-584-2788. Today, only when you pledge $10 a month to support Connecticut Public Radio, we will send you not one but two of our brand new Connecticut Public Beanies. Mm -hmm. How about that? But that's not all. This week only for every pledge for our new beanie, we will also donate a hat and pair of gloves to a Hartford Public School student. And today, that means two sets of hats and gloves will be donated when you pledge for the beanie. Uh, and in addition to that, we've got an exciting drawing for this drive. 
When you call in now, hopefully with a pledge, or when you donate online at WNPR.org, you'll be entered into a drawing to win a getaway at the study at Yale in New Haven. And it's not just the hotel stay that you will get. You will uh, get accommodations for two. You'll get breakfast for two at Heirloom Restaurant, and you'll get two tickets to a performance at the Yale Repertory Theater. And even better, if you are a current sustaining member of Connecticut Public Radio, you are already being automatically entered. If you are not a sustainer, if you have not given before, now is a great time to take advantage of uh, this offer that we have for the beanies and to be entered uh, into this drawing that we have. 1-800-584-2788 is the number to call. 1-800-584-2788 or go online to WNPR.org. We know that about nine out of every 10 listeners do not contribute. So we want to let you know that it takes a significant amount of work and dollars to run the station. We have to pay for NPR programming. We have to buy equipment that enables us to do our own reporting, recorders, microphones, headphones, and cameras, just some of the equipment that we use on a daily basis. We have to pay the people who bring you programs like Where We Live. But your contribution also enables you to be a sort of associate producer. It helps us continue to bring you this programming, and it tells us that you like what we're doing. You have a choice in this public radio community, and we value your opinion. You also make it possible for us to make decisions based on what you want to hear. So if this programming is important to you, if it's something you value, you have the ability to keep it right here and make sure that it continues. Give us a call at 1-800-584-2788, or as Tucker said, you can go online to WNPR.org. You set the amount that's comfortable for you. And again, that number is 1-800-584-2788 or WNPR.org. O-R-G. And we will be returning to Where We Live in just a moment. So we are hoping that when Where We Live is on the air, that you will show your support for this show. This is one of the ways that we gauge success of a given program is how much uh, listeners value it, how much uh, money we are able to raise while the show is on the air. So if you want to show your support for Where We Live, if you want to show your support for uh, the team behind this show, please do it now at 1-800-584-2788, one 584 2788 or wnpr.org and thanks so much in advance. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. We've been talking about millennials who are political leaders. In studio with me is Mayor Ben Florsheim of Middletown, Connecticut. And joining me now in, in uh, by phone, rather, is Representative Stephanie Cummings. She serves Waterbury's East End and East Mountain neighborhoods in the Connecticut General Assembly. Uh, Representative Cummings, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, so we were talking with uh, national correspondent of Time, uh, Charlotte Alter, about her book, looking into uh, why there are uh, individuals in the millennial generation who are stepping up and, and getting into politics. So what got you involved, Representative Cummings? I actually completely fell into politics when I was in college. I was taking First Amendment classes at Sacred Heart University with Dr. Gary Rose. And I just found the topic and the material so interesting, so um, I started volunteering on a campaign as part of my senior project, and then I interned at the House for the seat I actually hold now. And so you are a millennial uh, that's in the Republican Party in, in Connecticut. So when you think about uh, who your colleagues are in the General Assembly, are there a lot of, of millennial lawmakers? There are. I'm actually the youngest female lawmaker that is currently in the Connecticut General Assembly, but there are plenty of my colleagues like Jesse McLaughlin, who's another young Republican who's proud to represent the state of Connecticut. 
something we talked about with Charlotte is that when we think about the millennial generation, that uh, they skew left. And uh, with someone as polarizing as President Trump, uh, you don't see a lot of young Republicans uh, that um, are supporting uh, him and, and his policies. Um, how do you see the, the national conversation about what's happening in Washington with the divisiveness impacting the Republican Party here in Connecticut, if at all? Well, I think that the divisiveness that's happening down in D.C., of course, has an impact here in Connecticut. But I think that Connecticut Republicans, we are our own entity. We are bipartisan. We work together. We're the only caucus in the building that has a female leader. So I think that we really stand on our own in identifying who we are and the values that we represent here in Connecticut. So when you're thinking about issues that that you want to address for your constituency in Waterbury, but also thinking about uh, your young constituents, what are some of the issues that you want to tackle? as a state representative? So I represent Waterbury's East Side and East Mountain, and I'm actually probably the most urban Republican in the delegation. Um, But we work really closely across the the bipartisan aisle. So as a freshman, I was very concerned about public safety in my district. And I went through the budget and found a way that I could bring $300,000 back to the district per year to be able to fund anti-gang initiatives. And my colleagues from the entire Waterbury delegation joined in, and it was a bipartisan effort to help better Waterbury. We are hearing from someone on Facebook. James writes that he's a millennial, 26, on the Cromwell Town Council. Uh, he goes on to say it's vitally important that our generation makes up the majority of the workforce, that we have our voices heard for what we want the future of our state to look like. We want a sustainable Connecticut that's built for the next century and will keep uh, our young people from moving away. So, Representative Cummings, uh, is, this, is that something that you are, are also looking to address? Of course. I mean, making sure that my generation has a place to stay and the, uh, it is affordable to be able to have a family, that the education is something that our, our, the parents of these young children are going to want to engage in. Of course, that's important to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, right after this interview, I'm going downstairs to talk with the Waterbury Rail Caucus about making improvements to the rail line so that the Waterbury area can benefit the same way that the New Haven and Stamford area have to make it easier for our young professionals to be able to move throughout the state in a sustainable manner. And that's definitely an important issue uh, for residents, including uh, young uh, Connecticut residents. Uh, when I, I want to go back to uh, Mayor Florsheim, uh, hearing what Representative Cummings is saying about issues that resonate with her and her constituency. I mentioned, uh, again, the narrative about uh, people moving away from uh, the state. And so, so what are some ways to engage uh, the, the population to think about um, how to keep young people here, but not keeping it all negative? I, I do think that we need to – I think sustainability is a really great way to, to frame it. And, uh, you know, I, I heard, I think, my, my, my friend Councilman James Dimitriotis uh, uh, touch on that via via Facebook. I, I, I think that, you know, infrastructure is tremendously important. And, and, and really the way to think about this is, you know, we don't have to think about it necessarily – Everything as a as a generational issue. We can think about what are the what are the f- essential um, challenges that we face as a state, um, and and through that lens, you can see how it will benefit young people and and encourage them to either stay here or or come here from elsewhere. Um, infrastructure is incredibly important. Um, uh, Representative Cummings rep- uh, mentioned the Waterbury branch line, which um, you know I'm 
very familiar with, with from my from my time in Senator Murphy's office. One of his uh, one of his top priorities um, is is working with the state, working with the Waterbury delegation and the Valley delegation to um, to to bring that line to bring more service to that line and and thinking about public transportation infrastructure, whether that is Metro North or uh, uh, bus infrastructure, um, pedestrian and cycling infrastructure, that sort of thing. Um, these are things that we know that we need and we've needed them for a long time. They're also the things that we know that are important to young people and important to people who are thinking about what is going to be, uh, what what are my priorities in terms of a place that I'm that I'm looking to live. We also know we need to address cost of living. Um, that is the defining element of of the of this generation in, in a lot of ways is that you know we're facing um, uh, extraordinarily high cost of living on one end um, uh, many people uh, as you mentioned earlier saddled with 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 student debt and and other expenses on the on the other end um, and what are we doing about that in Connecticut how are we uh, thinking about our economy how are we thinking about the structure of our state and local government to to make it a more affordable more sustainable long-term place to live. I think that these are the issues that everybody is thinking about in our state, um, but they are also the ones that are going to be the lens through which millennials and younger people uh, look at when they're when they're thinking about their future here. You're hearing uh, Ben Florsheim again, mayor of Middletown, Connecticut. Um, on the phone with me is State Representative Stephanie Cummings, who serves Waterbury's East End and East Mountain neighborhoods in the Connecticut General Assembly. Uh, we're talking with them both uh, as we look at uh, uh, leaders and the, from the millennial generation who have stepped up and are serving in office. Uh, you can join us, too, at 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter uh, at Where We Live. Uh, Stephanie, uh, Representative Cummings, you mentioned or uh, we heard Mayor Florsheim mentioning uh, student debt. Is this something that you're also hearing from your constituency and you're in- interested in helping people not only figure out how to, to navigate that, but uh, getting uh, opportunities, training opportunities for new careers? Absolutely. I mean, speaking from personal experience, I have law school debt. I had to put myself through law school. I'm the first member of my family to have gone through college and a professional degree. So it is definitely something that I am concerned about. And one of the ways that I'm looking to address this is by being on the Commerce Committee, where I sit as the ranking member, encouraging the manufacturing and the trades to start talking to our students younger, because it seems that for so long we've pushed everybody into getting a college degree when not everyone needs to have a college degree. So we need to highlight the manufacturing and the trade opportunities that we do have in Connecticut. And that's what Waterbury has been long known for, for our manufacturing opportunities. When we're shoving everybody into getting a traditional four-year collegiate degree, we're ignoring the opportunity for someone to get a really good career with no student debt. So I think there's the issue of dealing with the the current student debt that people have taken on, but also how do we fix that problem going forward? Representative Cummings, you mentioned earlier that you kind of fell into uh, politics. You had a, a professor that piqued your interest uh, while you were uh, in college. Um, do you see a lot of young people um, that um, are looking up to you, seeing you as someone who can be a mentor and to have them also be engaged in politics? I sure hope so. You know, I try to reach out to the younger generation as much as I can. I actually just recently visited Crosby High School, which is in my district, and worked with a great group of dynamic students to talk about the issues that are important to them. And we talked about a bill that would take some of the tobacco settlement monies and bring it back to the districts to be able to promote anti-drug and anti-smoking initiatives. That was really important to them. And we're going to have a public hearing and bring them up to Hartford to engage in the process. So I hope that they learn. You know, they're not they're not old enough to vote at this point, but their voice still matters. And I want them to understand the process. I want them to know who their representative is and how they can 
engage in the dialogue that's going to impact them here in Hartford. How do you see the way you um, are interacting with your constituents uh, that might be different from, say, some of your older uh, colleagues at the General Assembly, Representative Cummings? Well, the way that I interact with my, my district is I make sure to get out there as much as I possibly can. I visit all of the community clubs. I visit the high schools. I go into the younger elementary schools. I talk about what it's like to be a lawyer, what it's like to be a state representative. So I try to make sure that I'm having as much one-on-one contact and talking to all of the generations in the area in which I live and represent. I want to go back to Mayor uh, Ben Florsheim again, who leads uh, the city of, of Middletown, uh, Connecticut. Uh, talk a little bit about some of the, the politicians that you're um, you know, working with, uh, uh, maybe in a bipartisan manner, uh, as you're thinking about, again, how to address uh, Connecticut's issues, and especially in Middletown, Connecticut. Well, I'm, I'm very lucky right now in that our city council, we have a 12-member city council that the members are all elected citywide at large. And it really doesn't feel, uh, you know, in this aspect, which is it's astonishing to even say this in the climate that we're living in at the national level. Uh, but right now, it doesn't even feel like we have partisan friction at all in Middletown, um, which is really pretty remarkable. We have uh, a majority leader on our council, uh, Councilman Gene Nocera, uh, and a minority leader, uh, Councilman Phil Pacina on the Republican side, who have known each other for uh, decades. And, you know, they're, they're uh, of a totally different generation than I am. Um, but I'm, I'm gratified that I have been able to um, with and, and that they have been willing to work very collaboratively with with me and uh, that they are also working very collaboratively together. Um, and, and, and the tone that we tried to strike during our campaign. Yeah, we were running. A, we ran a progressive issues oriented campaign and we're, we weren't going to back down on that. But we also uh, wanted to emphasize the importance of working together on these local issues. Um, and and I I, I, I like to think that to some extent we've been able to carry that tone over into city government in the at least in these first few months and and I think that that's going to uh, persist for a while I the, the we have as I mentioned before we have um, young elected officials in Middletown we have elected officials in Middletown who have been in office for longer than I've been alive um, and we are we're, we're reaching a point right now uh, at least for the time being where we're able to focus. You know, we, we, we have a lot of specific things that we have to tackle. We have a riverfront that we're working on redeveloping. We have a main street that is thriving, a downtown district that is thriving, but we need to make sure that we have our eye on the ball so we can keep it moving in the right direction. When you have those specific targets that you know you need to hit, um, then you've got, and you, it's easier to get everybody working on the same page. Well, we're running out of time, uh, but Representative Cummings, uh, before we uh, let you go, uh, you know, for, for millennials who are listening, uh, again, the drumbeat is often negative of why you want to stick around uh, in Connecticut. You know, why did you decide to stay in under 30 seconds? Because it's a great place. My family's here. There's so much opportunity. And if we want to, we have to be the example. You know, you could be the example and make a change in your community to make it the the kind of place that you can promote to everyone else as being such a wonderful environment to, to grow up and to live in. I want to thank State Representative Stephanie Cummings again, who serves uh, Waterbury's East End and East Mountain neighborhoods in the General Assembly. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Also, Mayor Ben Florsheim, I hope to have you back as well. Great to be here. Thanks. Uh, I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. It's also our winter fundraising campaign. If you appreciate the conversations on where we live and on WNPR, here's the number to call. 
It is 1-800-584-2788. 1-800-584-2788. I'm Tucker Ives. I'm joined by Lori Mack, who is down at Gateway Community College in New Haven. And we are asking for your support because we want to show where we live that we support them. We want uh, listeners to show that they support, that you support where we live as well. So please make that contribution at whatever amount is right for you. We have a $1,200 goal this hour. Uh, We are quite a bit short right now, but I do want to thank Jane Morgan in Norwich uh, who made a contribution. And Jane says uh, we do a good job. So thank you, Jane, for doing your part. We also heard earlier this hour from a uh, got a web contribution from Wilton who says that uh, we are one of the few spots to find in-depth coverage of Connecticut news. And that's what we hope to continue to bring you on Connecticut Public Radio each and every day. But we can only do that with your support. The number to call is one 800 584 or go online to to WNPR.org and click on the donate button in the upper right-hand corner. That's right. And if you listen to Where We Live regularly, by now you know that the show offers a variety of issues. They get into a topic on a level that we really don't have the opportunity to do on the news side. Lucy meets with her producers every day. They talk, listen, research, and plan out thoughtful shows on topics like the one you've just heard. Often there are hours of preparation that go into a single hour of programming. If this is a kind of programming that matters to you, if you find yourself interested in this topic or any of the topics that you've heard on Where We Live, This is an opportunity to show your support. And if you make a contribution during this hour, it actually makes us feel like we've done a good job. We look at the number of you who've called with a pledge at 1-800-584-2788 or who go online and click on the red donate button. So we kind of take this personally. Whether you make a contribution now or later, it really doesn't matter. The most important thing is that you do. You can see a number of thank you gifts if you go online to WNPR.org or you can just call us at 1-800-584-2788. We'll be moving on to more programming in just a moment, so we ask that you do make that pledge of support. We have a special today that when you pledge $10 a month or more, we will send you not one but two of our brand new Connecticut public beanies. I know it's a little warm out there right now. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly beanie weather, but I promise you that... uh, I don't know, maybe not this year, but maybe next year. We'll become beanie weather again, and you will be able to uh, rock this as well. And uh, this week only, when you do pick up one of those uh, beanie hats, uh, we will donate a hat and pair of gloves to a Hartford Public School student. So today, if you get those, uh, take advantage of that offer for two of these hats, we will send two pairs of hats and gloves to a uh, Hartford Public School student. So you can do your part right now by giving us a call at one 800 584 You can look online at WNPR.org and see a photo of what that hat looks like, but please do it now, and thanks so much for your support. 